Please turn with me now to Galatians chapter 5 and verses 13 through 22. Uh, In the Pew Bible, that's on page 916. Let us hear the reading of God's holy word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. This is God's holy word. Can you tell the difference between a dead tree and a living tree? It can be difficult sometimes since a living and a dead tree can look the same on the outside when it's not the season for fruit bearing. But when that season comes for the trees to bring forth their fruit, there is just no hiding the dead trees from the living trees. The tree that is bearing fruit is clearly alive. There is within that tree the power of life that makes it possible For that tree to bear fruit. The fruit of that tree cannot be produced or come forth apart from the power of life that is in that tree. It's impossible. There must be a life generating power that brings forth that tree from a seed to a sapling to a fruit bearing tree. The fruit that we see is simply the outworking of that life that is in that tree. The same can be said for the fruit produced in and out of us if we belong to Christ Jesus. That fruit produced in the followers of Christ is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what our message is about today. You will see in the bulletin four points. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. So let's look at our first point, the fruit of the Spirit. In the verses before our text, Paul had made it clear that the deeds or the works of the flesh are clearly seen through behavior or actions of the sinful nature. Paul is telling us the flesh is a hopeless life 
ruled by the tyranny of sin that elevates our emotions, passions, and loves above God. For if that is our life, then we have no hope of inheriting the kingdom of God. But, but thankfully in verse 22, Paul raises a point of opposition, heightening our awareness of the power of the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of holiness that he can only produce. For where the flesh demands many deeds of sin unto death, the Spirit gives one fruit of many graces unto life. Through that one fruit, the Holy Spirit makes his sovereign work known. So what is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit? Jesus tells his disciples in John 16 that it was necessary for him to go away so that another, a helper, could come. He's speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit. After describing the cosmic implications of the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus impresses upon his disciples the work of the Spirit upon their lives. He says in verse 13 and 14 the following, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's sovereign work is to make Jesus' life and rule known in all the world, especially in the life of his disciples. The Holy Spirit has come into the world to bring life and order back to God's creation, just as he did in the beginning when he moved over the surface of the waters in Genesis 1. And just as he gave life to mankind when he breathed into Adam and he became a living soul that was set apart to serve God and be fruitful, Genesis 2, he comes now to recreate a new humanity by first regenerating them, by giving them life, by making them born again, John 3, and by sanctifying them, making them holy, by giving them the power to be fruitful in true love and holiness to God, their creator. But none of the Spirit's work is possible without a new Adam. Christ Jesus, who became a life-giving Spirit. For in Christ Jesus we live and have life. And the Spirit's work is to disclose that life to us by manifesting it in us and showing us the glory of our Savior Christ Jesus. Without the Spirit, we have no hope of seeing his glory. We have no hope in producing the fruit that belongs to Christ. But in Christ Jesus, we have all hope. We must have Christ living in us through his spirit, that we may bear fruit that glorifies him. The spirit must come and plant within us a holy and imperishable seed that we may live unto God and be fruitful in the life of Christ. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that planting 
is through the living and enduring word of God. Do you see the sovereign work of the Spirit? He must show us Christ. He must show us his life. He must show us that he lives within us that we may be fruitful by drawing out his work in us. The sovereign work in the ministry of the Spirit is life. He gives life, and he makes that life known through the fruit that is born in us. For that reason, we should never simply give the Holy Spirit a wink and a nod or a subcredit for the fruit we display. Hear Paul's words, the fruit of the Spirit. Not Tim's fruit, not your fruit, but the fruit of the Spirit. So let us ask ourselves, how often do we consider the ministry of the Holy Spirit? How often are we uttering the words of David, take not your Holy Spirit from me? Sadly, the Holy Spirit's ministry is often overlooked, minimized, or sensationalized. This ought not to be for a Christian. We must lean into the power of the Holy Spirit through the means of God's grace, through the Word of God, through prayer, through the sacraments, through worship, and so many more where we partake of God's goodness if we are to truly see Jesus. For to see Jesus, we must have the one fruit of the Spirit with its many graces if we are to live a life of holiness. So let's speak about the first of those many graces, love. Love. What do we mean by graces? We mean the outworking of the grace, capital G, in us. Or the virtues, the qualities that proceed from that grace that now reigns in us and over us. For where grace reigns, God's love is found. Before we were alive in Christ Jesus, sin reigned over our mortal bodies. But now that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, grace reigns. Grace reigns. Hallelujah. We are no longer alive to sin, to serve it. We are free from its power. We are free to live in holiness and love to God. Not because we love God first, but because he loved us first. So what kind of love is the fruit of the Spirit? In Greek, as we may know, there are three types of love. Eros, philia, and agape. The love we are talking about is agape love. A selfless, sacrificial love that is expressed through a deep affection and action of purpose for another. It is more than emotion. It is more than just a warm and fuzzy feeling. It is a love displayed in the action of sacrifice. It is the love that describes and that Jesus describes in John 15:13 when he says, 
Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. It is the kind of love that Jesus displays upon the cross by laying his life down for us. That's love. That's a holy love. A love set apart from any other. It's a love different than any love we know. We may have deep affections for something in our life, but would we lay down our life for it? I'm a huge Georgia Bulldog fan, and I love watching them play football. But would I lay down my life for that love? I sure hope not. sure hope not. <laughs> Who loves their pets? Would you lay your life down for it? Now, that's a loaded question. Some may, I know, but most would not, I believe. Maybe wrong, but I believe they wouldn't. A love is not agape love if that love does not call you to sacrifice for others. In a Christian's life, it's a beautiful love that is a powerful manifestation that you are alive in Christ and he is alive in you. Paul tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is so that we would desire to have it displayed in our life. So how do we display it? We practice it. We will never be able to fully express the perfect love that Jesus displayed on the cross. But that does not mean that we throw up our hands and say, oh well, and become complacent. We are called to walk, live that kind of love, that we may discover the quality of that love which is rooted in obedience. Jesus showed us a love that was willing, sacrificial, selfless, bold, gracious, merciful, and obedient. This is the love that we're called to. It's this love which is foundational to all the other graces. For without it, none of the others could be possible. Because God is love. And when we love like God loves, we abide in him. And he in us, according to 1 John 4. But we cannot love apart from God's love in the way he commands. The world abuses the idea of love. Because sin has polluted it, maybe we've polluted it, by assigning it to our passions and desires without any regard to honoring God. Love can be anything that we have deep feelings for. It can be temporary. It can be promiscuous. It can be misguided. It can be cultivated in holy unions. It can be self-serving. But that is not the love of God. God's love, agape love, is a sacrificial love. It is a love that is built upon the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Sorry. And so that's why we need a right heart. We need a right heart to love God sincerely and live a fruitful life. 
So how do we live a fruitful life? How is a valid question in the Christian's life? I know many resist the how-to mindset. I do as well if it's based purely on a desire to rely on our own actions to get to God or manipulate God in obtaining what we want. But I firmly believe the scripture instructs us on how to live in relationship with God. We are called to have a serious relationship of love with him in Mark 12, verses 30 through 31. For we are commanded and therefore called to love him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is a high calling, but one we must embrace if we love Christ. Yes, we will constantly fall short of this commandment. But because of Jesus' love for us and our love for him, we should press on by his grace, seeking to obey him. So how is a valid question when we are seeking the instruction of the Spirit? For instance, we're instructed in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice, the work is done in you by God. We are instructed to work that work out of us. To work that work out of us. So there we are, we are shown that it is to accomplish, to experience that work fully, both inwardly and outwardly. To do this, we are to lean into God's work so that the work is lived out of us in all of our life. So let me illustrate it, give you a moment of vulnerability here. On the day of my committee ordination exams, I was not feeling too confident. I had been ill the week before leading up to that moment and had not prepared as I would have liked. I was getting anxious, so much so that I called Stan up that day and told him I wasn't ready and asked him if I should postpone. Stan said, I think you should go through with it. I have confidence you will be fine. Although I was not confident, I leaned into Stan's confidence. And when I did that, I began to experience and live out the degree of confidence that Stan expressed. Now, maybe he just wasn't that confident, and that's okay. And he was just making me feel good. But it worked. It worked. By God's grace, I'm here. So the confidence was not originally mine. It was Stan's. But once he expressed that confidence, it became mine first through his communication and then second through my own experience. This is how God's grace works. He first communicates his grace of love to us by pouring into our hearts his love through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. And because of the Spirit's work in us, we can work it out by leaning into God's love so that we can love him 
and love others like he loves us. It's a, a magnif- magnificent love. Because for us to love like God's love, we have to have a heart transplant. We have to have a, a removal of a heart of stone and have it replaced with a heart of love. And so let me ask you, do you find it hard to love God? It's a valid question. It's a real question that we need to ask ourselves in our lives. Do we find it hard to love with agape love? Sure, we can all say we love God. But do our lives say we agape love God? Do we put God before ourselves? Are we indifferent to his commandments? Are we resistant to them? Or do we love to obey them to express our love for Christ? Do we love the church? Do we love to worship? Do we love God's people? 1 John 4 tells us that if we don't love God's people, then the love of God is not in us. It's not in us. Do we love our enemies? Do we love those who persecute us and despitefully use us? That's hard. That's hard for all Christians. That's hard for me. If it is hard for you to love that way, then pray to God and ask him for a new heart or ask him for a new discovery of his love that you may find joy in serving and following him. That brings us to our second grace, joy. When we hear the word joy, what do we think of? We usually think of excitement, exuberance, extreme happiness, and laughter. But is this the joy that is the fruit of the Spirit? It can certainly involve all that and should when it's appropriate. But the Bible shows us that it means something more. In Hebrews 12.2, the author encourages us to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That seems to be a strange combination taking place with the idea of joy and suffering. When we think of suffering, I don't think we would certainly think about joy. But when Jesus saw the end of his finished work of enduring the death upon the cross, he takes delight and satisfaction in that suffering. Clearly, the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus threw a party on the way to the cross. But that does not mean he did not have joy. For he was deeply satisfied with what must happen. His joy is the deep contentment, delight, and resolve to obey his Father's will. Because he knew what his death would accomplish. His death would accomplish salvation and redemption. His death would bring about the defeat of sin and death and the grave. And his death would mean a resurrection was coming. 
that would restore all things. Jesus was a man of sorrow, but yet he had all joy. Because Jesus had joy, we are to have joy. In John 15, verses 1 through 11, Jesus speaks about the life-giving and fruit-bearing abiding of his disciples in him and he in them. He explains that he is the vine and they are the branches. The branches can bear fruit as long as they abide in the vine. But if the branch no longer abides in the vine, it cannot bear fruit. The branch is fully dependent upon the life of the vine to bear fruit. He also fills out what the abiding is for the disciples and why he's telling them all of this. The abiding is the perfect abiding in God's love in Christ Jesus. His disciples were called to abide in Christ's love. How? By obeying him. Why? So that their joy may be full. What Jesus had just taught is that there can be no joy apart from loving him, which is expressed in obedience to him. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. Here's another strange combination to our ears. Love, obedience, and joy. Yes, we can see the connection of love to joy, but obedience to joy, that's difficult to connect. But once again, we must lean into Jesus' joy to understand that connection. For he took joy in obeying his Father. Through his obedience, he expresses love to his Father. We are to have the same heart, mind, and joy of Jesus. That is what we are instructed in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Paul says, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. He goes on to tell us what that mindset is by exalting Christ Jesus in his obedience to the Father and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are to live his joy. We are to live out of the fruit of the Spirit and making his joy complete by loving as he loves. He loved his Father and he loved his people. We are to express joy with an extreme sense of pleasure and a sincere contentment in the face of death, trials, hardship, sufferings, bad days at work and school, struggles with the kids, with your teachers, with your friends, with your bosses, with financial pains, and whatever may come that is not pleasant in this world. Joy is to delight in the Lord in all seasons of life. I can remember the funeral of Miss Denson. She was a faithful member of the church that my dad pastored when I was growing up. She had suffered for many years with sickness, with illness. I sorrowed greatly when we went to that funeral. 
Because we had lost someone that was like a grandmother to us. And there's great pain and sorrow that I was expressing outwardly. But yet inwardly I had a joy. I had a joy. Why did I have a joy? Because her suffering had come to an end. And I knew that she was with her dear blessed Savior. She was with her dear blessed Savior. This is Christian joy. A joy that looks beyond the present sufferings unto the glory of eternity. We are to delight in the Lord by sharing in his sufferings now that we may express the seriousness of our faith to the world. We want others to see that we really believe in being happy in Christ, no matter what storms may come. We want others to see that we really are happy about being a Christian. There is no greater joy than a life of a Christian. So if we believe that then we should live out that joy. If we believe that, let us live it. Let us live it. So what is it that others read? The epistle, the heart letter of your life. What are they reading? Are they reading a message of love, joy, and peace? Or are they reading a life of disgust, misery, and turmoil? We as Christians don't want to offer a bad testimony of God's love. So it needs to be lived upon our face. It needs to be lived in every action that we take that says we love being a Christian. Christians should convey a message of joy that others would want to come to Christ. We want others to be curious about the reason for our hope. That others would ask us, why are you hopeful in a world that is falling apart? What's the reason for that? Why do you have peace when everything around my life is broken? Relationships are broken. The economy's broken. The government's broken. Hearts and lives are broken. But yet you still have peace. The answer is our next grace that we look upon. We look at the final grace of the message today, peace. Peace. Jonathan Cruz, a pastor and a theologian in his book, The Character of Christ, makes this observation about the word peace in the Bible. It occurs nearly 500 times in Scripture. So he makes the proposition that maybe the entire theme of the Bible is peace. Because of this, he asserts that God's entire purpose for the universe is best summarized with the word peace. He makes the point that order, peace, were brought into a chaotic world that was without form and void. And when sin entered into the world, it fractures this order and peace. And now the world is in division with God. I think he's right. I think he hit the nail right on the head. Sin brought a division between God and his creation, and especially with mankind, that peace with God was no longer possible without reconciliation. This broken world with its broken humanity needs to be reconciled to God, and this is only possible by a Redeemer. God promised to send this Redeemer 
at the very moment the peace of creation was fractured by sin. In Genesis 3.15, God makes this promise to send a redeemer that will crush the head of Satan. Was not peace on earth a major focus of the heavenly host announcement of Christ's birth in Luke 2.14? Why was this proclamation so important? Because the Redeemer that God had promised in Genesis 3.15 is now born. The Redeemer entering creation meant that order, peace, could be restored. According to 1 Corinthians 5.17, Jesus entered into a broken world to restore peace by reconciling us to God, by becoming sin even though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the peace that is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. It is a peace that comes from our reconciliation to God. If we have faith in Christ, we are no longer enemies to God because we have been justified by faith in Christ Jesus that we may have peace in him. That's Romans 5. This means that we have embraced life, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. If you have had faith or are to have faith, you are to embrace the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus that satisfies the wrath of God, that we may live unto him in peace. This is a glorious reconciliation that should be music to our ears and it should bring peace into our lives. This peace is not like the peace that is found in the world. According to Philippians 4, 7, it is the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension because it'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For when sin raises its ugly head day after day, we may begin to wonder if we are still right with God. Or when our life is in turmoil and things aren't just going right in our relationships, they're not going right at work or school, in our home life, or with our health, we need peace. When that happens, we need the peace that surpasses understanding as our mind begins to dream up scenarios of doom and gloom, and our hearts began to pant in desperation. We need the peace that doesn't make sense to our circumstance. We need the peace that confounds all logic because it shouldn't be there, but yet it is. It's there because the Holy Spirit has brought peace from within to calm our chaotic lives. Again, because we have peace within us, we are to live it out of us. Romans 12, 18 instructs us to live peacefully with all whenever possible. So many times we secure that peace through the reconciliation of conflicts. How appropriate since our peace is secured through the reconciliation of our conflict with God. But we must be careful not to live a false peace, a false peace that's based on our feelings and not on the promises of God 
where our salvation is securely, safely secured in Christ Jesus' atoning work. We must have assurance that all is right with God if we are to have peace in this life. So where is your peace found? Is it found in your circumstances? Is it found in your wealth? Is it found in your health? Is it found in your intelligence or your resolve to do right and get right with God, to live the best that you can? Or is it found in your family? Is it found in your acceptance by others? If your peace is, any, is in anything else than Christ, it is not the fruit of the Spirit. It wasn't born of the Spirit. The Spirit, and I pray this is to take away if you got anything from the sermon, the Spirit will show you Christ. Will show you Christ. He will show you the peace that Christ has secured for you in eternity. And he will implant a hope in you that is not fatalistic or that will make you ashamed. But this hope will give peace, real abiding peace. So may God's grace live in you through his spirit that you may have a constant discovery of Christ's love, joy, and peace.